Okay, we'll go ahead and get started. We have a lot of material to cover, so let's open in a word of prayer. Father, as we come before you, as we behold you, as you reveal your character and yourself and your word, Father, may we be awed. May we fall before you in adoration and thanksgiving. Lord, I pray the Spirit would take the word as we examine it today. He would, as you promised, judge our thoughts and intentions. And you would use your word today to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ for your glory. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Okay, well, it's good to be back. I really appreciate Kyle being willing to cover. And you know, I will tell you, this church, if you haven't figured it out yet, is really blessed to have so many talented men who can teach. You know, I mean, it's not just the elders. We have a lot of other folks who are talented. And it was really, uh, I'm really grateful to Kyle for teaching. Um, that was sort of his payback for not getting to do chapter 53. So, all right. So after today, we have nine chapters left. So I didn't think we'd ever finish this book, but actually it looks like we may. So we're going to be in the third section of the book, which is chapters 56 through, <coughs> excuse me, 66, where, the, where we're going to see the fullness of the coming Messiah revealed. We're going to see some things you're not going to see anywhere else in Scripture. We're going to see some incredible details about his return. We already saw in Isaiah 53 the gospel revealed to us in incredible detail. If you remember chapters 1 through 39, Isaiah confronts his generation for their failure to treat God as God, for their idolatry, for their rebellion um, of practical atheism, which is pretty much our, our country today. And he also judged the nations for their gross immorality. We saw that. In chapters 40 through 55 is the second major theme, and he looks beyond just the immediate times to the near-term deliverance from Babylon and also to the long-term deliverance um, of Judah and all of the peoples, and that's what we're going to focus on today, um, the coming of the Messiah, how the Lord will put away iniquity, how he's going to establish his kingdom. And we're going to look at all of that. And then in chapters, for the rest of the book really, 56 through 66, we're going to see unseen detail of his redemptive plan. Um, we'll be in new territory here. Especially, we're going to see some things about Israel's leadership. Now we've seen that in the past, right? And we noticed that God said that was part of his judgment. If you remember, we saw the phrase that he was going to give Israel children, capricious children as leaders. So that's part of his judgment. But I, I just want to remind you that some of the detail we're going to see, even Isaiah and the people at that time didn't fully understand. Jesus says this in Luke 10, starting in verse 23. And turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things you see and did not see them, and to hear the things you hear 
and did not hear them. Right? So we're going to see, they did not understand all of Isaiah 53. They didn't understand what was going to happen in the future. Peter even comments on this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Concerning the salvations, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and iniquities, inquiring to know what time and what time and what kind of time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And that's exactly what we see. Isaiah 53, we see the sufferings of Christ predicted, but even Isaiah didn't fully understand it. Isaiah didn't fully understand what was coming, but now we do, right? God has revealed all of his redemptive plan from eternity past to eternity future, and we know all of that. Now, we only know the detail God has chose to reveal, and we don't know the precise timing, right? Even Jesus said, look, I don't, I don't know the day or the hour, and you won't either. If somebody says, hey, Jesus is coming back Thursday, run away, right? Because that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. But I will tell you this, I believe it's soon, right? I was talking, I was with a couple other brothers yesterday, and we're all agreeing that we think we, you know, we may see him in our lifetime, and I think my grandchildren will see it for sure. Again, I'm not a prophet, I could be wrong, but Jesus said, hey, look at the sky, look at the fig tree, be aware of the signs, right? Jesus said we need to be paying attention to this stuff. We need to be ready. So let's get into our text. We're going to try and do chapters 56 and 57, right? Now, if you've been in, most of you are laughing, going, yeah, yeah, I don't think we're going to do that. And, and we may not, but we're going to give it a try, okay? Let me read verses 1 through 8 of Isaiah 56. Thus says Yahweh, keep justice and do righteousness. For my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to Yahweh say, Yahweh will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuchs say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says Yahweh to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. To them I will give my house and within my walls as a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Also the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh to minister to him and to love the name of Yahweh and to be his slaves, everyone who keeps from profaning, profaning the Sabbath and takes hold of my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them glad, make them glad in my house of prayer, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Lord Yahweh, who gathers the banished of Israel, declares, 
yet others will gather them to those already gathered. Now, I don't know about you, but that is an incredible section of Scripture. Because if you're Joe Bag of Bagels at that time, and Isaiah is preaching and showing you this, right? This is not only not going to be totally acceptable, this is going to be greatly offensive to you. What he's saying here is, look, Israel, I'm going to bring in the foreigners, and I'm going to even bring in eunuchs, right? Incredibly offensive to them. First of all, we need to understand he's building on chapter 55, right? None of these chapter, again, chapter distinction, verse distinction, we added those. Those aren't part of the original text. In chapter 55, Kyle taught you from verse 1 and 2 where it says this, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come by and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for that, for that uh, is not bread, and your wages for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and delight your soul in richness. See, that is a general calling that Yahweh is giving, but now Yahweh is going to get more specific. He's going to continue to build on that. So I want you to notice, if we look at that, first of all, all who come to Yahweh, all who come, must come in righteousness. There will be nobody who will stand before Yahweh on his holy mountain, as he describes here, in his holy place, um, who experience his covenant, who don't do it in righteousness. So how can the Gentiles take part of the blessing of God in his holy kingdom? Well, it says in Romans 3.20, because of the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, there's no way man by himself is going to do this. Right? It's trusting in him. First of all, I want you to know several things about the foreigner who is going to come to Yahweh. First of all, his internal motivation and commitment is to please God. He is there, his desire, we see this in verse 4, is to please the Lord. We see in verses 2, 4, and 6 that they will hold fast to his covenant. Now in this case, he's probably speaking of the old covenant, trying to do that, but ultimately it's the new covenant that will save them, right? And by the way, how are you saved? The new covenant. There is nobody who will stand before God who is not covered by the new covenant. Now we know from the Lord's Supper that we are covered by the new covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, is how they will be covered in the new covenant. The next thing we see in verse 6 is that they must love Yahweh. They must love God. This will produce the behavioral actions that are consistent with God's ways. What else must they do? They must have an external demonstration of covenant life with just relationships. We see that in verse 1. And they set the Sabbath apart as a holy day to God, serving God. Now, we need to understand what here he's talking about with the Sabbath. First of all, who is Lord of the Sabbath? 
Jesus Christ is. Right? If you remember, there are multiple instances where Jesus heals on the Sabbath, where his disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath. And what do the Pharisees want to do? Man, they want to stone him. They want to get rid of him. This man doesn't understand the Sabbath. Well, who's the ones who don't understand the Sabbath? The Pharisees. They're making up all these ridiculous rules that are nowhere in the law. And then Jesus finally reminds them that man isn't for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is for man. And oh, by the way, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Right? That great hymn by Martin Luther. And then finally we see that they must turn from evil. We see that in chapter 2. And we must understand, will this happen? Will the nations be gathered? Well, let's look at what it says in Revelation 21, verse 24. And the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory in it. They're talking now about the new Jerusalem. And its gates will never cease to be clo- will will never be closed by day, and for there will be no night there, and they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and nothing defiled, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. By the way, when did that happen? When was your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Before the foundation of the world. They had some weirdo preach about that a few weeks ago. So let's, the next thing I want you to notice in this text, verses 1 through 8, is how God extends now salvation to the outcasts, right? These are the people Joe Bag of Bagels would never associate with. These are the foreigner, they're the outcasts. He's extending the kingdom to all who are faithful and righteous. None are excluded. We need to understand what a shock this would be to the average person and to Isaiah's readers. It would be totally unthinkable to them. First of all, it's extended to the foreigner. Who is the foreigner? Foreigners, Gentiles, you are who they're talking about here. You're the foreigner. You're the Gentile. It says in Exodus 14, verse 43, Yahweh's talking to Moses, and it says, And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. Right? That's their expectation. No foreigner is going to eat of that. Foreigners aren't included in the covenant. And in fact, are foreigners included in the old covenant? What do you think? No. But they could. They could attach themselves to Israel if they obeyed all the laws. But that's why he says, yeah, but even the foreigner can't. participate in the Passover, they had to be um, circumcised. They had to keep the law. There were foreigners who were associated with Israel, but they were really the exception, and they were never fully accepted. But we see in Acts 10.28, and he said to them, you yourselves, this is, by the way, Peter talking to Cornelius, right? Cornelius is a Roman officer. 
Um, and Peter shows up at his place. And by the way, Cornelius is a what? He's a Gentile. He's a Gentile. He's a Roman officer. How disgusting is that? But God, in a dream, says, hey, go with these guys and go do what I tell you. So Peter goes there and he says this in verse 28. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit with them. And yet God has shown me that I should call no man defiled or unclean. In other words, what has God done? The age of the Gentiles has begun now the gospel is freely offered to everybody. Freely offered, and that's what Isaiah is seeing here. And then he uses the example of the eunuch. Why would he do that? Why would he pick the eunuch? Because there was absolutely nobody in the eyes of the Jews more disgusting than a eunuch. Now, I don't want to get in graphic detail here, but you understand what a eunuch is, right? In Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, no one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of Yahweh. Man, no eunuch will be associated with you guys, but now God is offering the gospel to what the Jews considered the absolute most disgusting, and that was a eunuch. By the way, just as a sidelight, it is most likely true that Daniel was a eunuch. Now, many eunuchs were not made eunuchs of their own choice. Daniel, for example, right? Um, if he was a eunuch, that was not by his choice. Um, we read in Daniel that Ashpenaz, who was the guy overseeing Daniel, was chief of the eunuchs. Okay. In other words, God promises blessing to all. I want you to notice here in the text, he says God will give them a place and a name within his kingdom. <clears throat> What's that all about? It says that God will give them a name within his house. That's interesting. Why would he bring up the idea of giving them a name? We need to understand um, that when God gives a name, he is trying to communicate something. In verse 6, I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. So God is going to give these foreigners, these eunuchs, a new name. We need to understand God gives new names to signify a new relationship, right? He gives names to signify a new relationship with him. Can we think of any of examples in Scripture? I don't know, maybe Abram became who? Okay, and Jacob became Israel. There's a guy named Simon. What did he become? There's this guy named Saul. Who did he become? Okay, well, that applies to those guys. But not to you, right? False. <laughs> False. Are you going to get a new name? Yes. <laughs> you guys looked ahead in the notes. I want you to notice 
in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. You may want to turn there. And again, if you haven't highlighted this in your Bible, and just so you know, over the weekend my highlighter ran out. I have eight different colors. Two of them ran out. I ordered like a hundred highlighters. They're all coming today on Amazon. All different colors. Multiple backups. So I can highlight in my Bible. This is a verse you want to highlight. Revelation 2 verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to believers' fellowship. To him who overcomes... Actually, I, that wasn't in the original text. I added that. Okay. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some hidden manna, and listen to this, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. We see the exact thing in chapter 3, verse 12. Exact same. So God, when we get raptured, when we get to heaven, Jesus is going to give you a white stone. And there's going to be a name that's between you and him. Just you and him. I like to look at this sort of as a term of endearment. Right? I mean, when I married my wife, you know, there were, there were names I just called my wife. They're not her official name. It's not Lorray. And all of you understand what I'm talking about. If you're married, you have things you call your spouse. It's not a real name. <laughs> Revelation 21, verse 24. Not only we will have a new name, but we will be in a sanctuary. It says, I saw no sanctuary. He's talking about the New Jerusalem. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its sanctuary. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory to it. This is what Isaiah is talking about. There will come a time when even Gentiles and eunuchs and anybody... The lowliest outcast can come to Jesus Christ. They can come, they can repent of their sins, and God will make them righteous. But then we're going to see the flip side of this. He's calling the eunuch and the outcast, and now he's going to condemn the leadership of Israel. He's going to point out they can come, but the leadership of Israel is going to be rejected. In chap in uh, verses 9 through 11, we're going to see beasts and watchmen and shepherds. Um, the shepherd and the watchman are titles used to refer to the leadership of Israel. Um, and we're going to see that the beasts are going to come after them. The prophets should have been watchmen and warned Israel to repent but they ignored their responsibility. Priests failed to lead in the path of righteousness. That's what's going on. Look at the text. Let's read verses 9 through 12. All you beasts of the field, all you beasts in the forest, come and eat, come to eat. His watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. 
All of them are mute dogs unable to bark, dreamers lying down who love to slumber, and the dogs have a strong appetite, and they, know, they do not know satisfaction, and they are shepherds who do not have understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each, each one to his greedy gain, to the last one. Come, they say, let us take wine and let us drink heavily of strong drink. And tomorrow will be like today, beyond exceedingly great. Well, that's not going to be the case for them, is it? Let me read you a quote from Altman. He said this. That's what Isaiah is exposing. He understands that you can't wink at private corruption and maintain public good. He understands that what matters most is not policy, but character. Why? Because of God. Even as these leaders in Isaiah's vision are boasting their luck and thinking that they've never had it so good, God is calling in their enemies, the beasts of the field, to devour them. It's exactly what's going on here. We have these leaders who think they can do anything they want and get away with it. We have these priests, we have these prophets who are worried about themselves instead of doing what God called them to do. They're totally corrupt. And notice, God is calling their enemies, in this case, beasts of the field, to come and devour them. We see the same thing in Ezekiel 29, verse 5, where he says, I will abandon you in the wilderness, you and all the fish uh, of your canals of the Nile, and you will fall in the open field, and you will not be brought together or gathered. I have given you for food to the beasts of the earth and the birds of the sky. What he's saying here is figuratively, your enemies are going to come and destroy you, right? You may think nothing's going to happen. You may think you can do all this without consequence, but God sees. They may think nobody else sees, you may think you can sin in private, but God sees. Notice what he calls them. He says the leaders are blind. The watchmen are blind. Isaiah 29.9, astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. They became drunk, but not with wine. They staggered, but not with strong drink. And Jesus, even centuries later, Jesus comments on their leadership in Matthew 15, verse 12. And the disciples came to him and said, Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard your statement? But he answered and said, Every plant which the Heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into the pit. See, at the time of Isaiah, the leadership, the, the priests were blind. And 700 years later, what's going on? They're still blind. And Jesus even shows it. Their watchmen are useless. They're blind, ignorant, lazy, and incapable of worshiping, warning Israel of the coming disaster. This is a very serious condemnation for the leaders of Israel. If you look at Ezekiel 33, verse 2, he's talking about the same group of people. 
And he says, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon the land, and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming in the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, um, then he who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. But in verse 5, he heard the sound of the trumpet, did not take warning, his blood will be on himself. But had he taken warning, he would have escaped with his life. Look at verse 6. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I require from the watchman. He's saying, look, if the watchman doesn't do what the watchman's supposed to do, the people will still be taken away. But I'm going to require the blood of the who? The watchman. Watchman's going to be responsible for that. By the way, just as an aside, it's a little different. You know what your church security team is called? The watchman. The watchman. There you go. So we'll blow the trumpet. Actually, we have radios. but um, I want you to notice they're focused on today. This describes our culture to a T. Let us eat, drink, and... Uh, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, right? Isaiah fifty six twelve. Come, they say, let us take wine and let us drink heavy, heavily of strong drink, and tomorrow will be like today, beyond exceedingly great. That's what they thought. But we were told earlier in Isaiah 22, instead, behold, there is joy and gladness, killing of the cattle and slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. There you go. James says this in James 5.5, 5, You have lived luxuriously on the earth and lived in self-indulgence. You have flattered your hearts in a day of slaughter. See, God warns them. God tells them, look, watchmen, look, leadership, you may think you can party. You may think life is good, but you have no idea what's coming. And by the way, that's exactly true in America today. We talked about this earlier, that one of the ways God judges a nation is how. We've seen this repeatedly in the book of Isaiah. How does God judge a nation first? What does he do? He corrupts their leadership, right? He gives them false leaders. We looked earlier, if you remember, way back in the, in the first few chapters where he says to Israel, I am going to give you capricious children as leaders, right? Your leadership is going to be children. That's how they're going to behave, like silly children, right? Totally corrupt, unable to make moral decisions. Oh, I don't know. Does that kind of remind you of anything today? Not at all. But you need to understand that is part of God's judgment. Right? We need to understand that is part of God's judgment. That is how God judged Israel. We saw that when God judged the nations. I wish that right? false teachers too, though. Not well, that's right. Yeah. So what we see here is he is warning their leaders, and their leaders are totally corrupt. 
But let's move on to chapter 57, and we're going to see the evil of Israel's practices. Let me read verses 1 through 13. He says, starting in verse 1, The righteous man perishes, no, and no man puts, on, puts it upon his heart. And the man of loving kindness are gathered away, while no one understands. For the righteous man is gathered away from the evil, he enters into peace. They rest in their beds, each one who walked in his upright way. But draw near, you sons of a soothsayer, seed of an adulterer and a prostitute. Against whom do you jest? Against whom do you open? You, uh, whom do you open wide your mouth and stick out your tongue? Are they not children of transgression? Seed of lying, who inflame yourselves upon the oaks, under every green tree, who slaughter the children in the ravines, under the clefts of the cliffs. Among the soothsayers of the ravine is your portion. They are your lot. Even to them you have poured out a drink offering. You have made a grain offering. Shall I resent concerning these things? Upon a mountain, lofty and lifted up, you have made your bed. You also went up there to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost, you have set up your memorial. Indeed, far removed from me, you have uncovered yourself. You have gone up and made your bed wide, and you have cut a covenant for yourselves with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on their manhood. You have journeyed to the king with oil and increased your perfumes. You have set your envoys a great distance and made them go down to Shoal. You were tried out. You, um, you were tried out by the length of your road, yet you did not say it is hopeless. You found renewed strength, therefore you did not faint. To whom were you anxious and fearful when you lied and did not remember me, nor even put me in your heart? Was I not silent even for a long time? So you do not fear me. I declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will lift all of them up, and the breath will make them uh, take them away. But he who takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. Wow. This is probably one of the strongest condemnations you will read of Israel and Judah. Right? God has had enough. Right, he's had enough. I want you to look at what it says about them. First of all, I'm going to kind of bring this together for you. <clears throat> the first practice we see um, is their unrighteousness. They are, they are removing people um, who are righteous. Their leadership is corrupt. And they have structural injustice in which the righteous men are removed without a trace. 
and no one understands the catastrophe. For the first four lines of the Stanya describes the monumentous situation that we're talking about here. The righteous perish and no one takes heart. The devout are taken away and no one understands. They sharpen their sword and he says that when confronting evil, no one is taken to prison. In other words, they are absolutely corrupt to the point where they get rid of anybody who is moral. They get rid of the righteous. They remove them. I don't know, kind of like what's going on today, right? We don't want to have people speaking the truth. we got to silence them on social media. We need to get rid of them. And by the way, I'll just let you know, that's coming, folks. The world will not tolerate us much longer. Right? And that's why so much of the, quote, church is compromising. Right? So much of the church is doing exactly what it's talking about here. We don't want to be taken away, so we're just going to go ahead and go along with the world. Well, I'll tell you, this church is never going to do that. Not only that, but in verses 3 through 5, we see sorcery and child sacrifice. Israel practiced witchcraft and even sacrificed their own children. They slaughtered their children. And a lot of this, you, you need to look in the original language. The first part of this addresses those who scorn the righteous, right? And the prophet brands the mothers of these scorners as promiscuous and utterly immoral. The righteous represent those who have remained faithful, and the Lord will watch over them, while the others go ahead and adopt the gods of the nations, Baal, Marduk, Ishtar, and others. They worship these gods, they receive special attention. I want you to notice their sexual immorality, and these are associated with spiritual sexual immorality. As part of their worship, they did sexual immorality. They thought they could guarantee fertility by participating in the sexual immorality associated with the gods of their nations. And they sacrificed their children. Um, uh, the god Moloch is involved in this. That Israel practiced this in this time is an indication of their total defilement, their children were sacrificed to the god Moloch. Right? We can sit here and we can point our finger at them and say whatever we want, but we're killing far more of our children than they killed, right? God will. So I want you to notice God's anger against this, God's ju judgment against this. But just look around at the culture around us, right? God is the same yesterday, today, and what? Forever. Right? God doesn't change. God will not forever close his eyes right, to this kind of immorality. We see gross sexual immorality in verses 6 through 8. They mix sexual immorality with their worship. Jeremiah 3 verse 6 says, But Yahweh said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithful Israel, faithless Israel did? 
She went up on the high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. Right? They're practicing the most obscene kind of worship. Certainly not what pleases God. And um, I want you to notice it says, first of all, it refers in the original, in the feminine singular, the, the community, the exiles of Israel are spoken of as a prostitute. The reference to smooth stones here seems to be to a valley where they worshipped. And they used their children, I'm sorry, and they, they committed this idolatry there. They used their idols in their worship. And um, the mountains that they went to to implore another deity's favor. This isn't where they were called to worship. This isn't the temple in Jerusalem. And the reference to, the, uh, to your bed indicates that the deity's favor was sought by means of some sort of sexual liaison. In Ezekiel 16, 16, it says, You took some of your clothes and made for yourselves high places in various colors, and you played the harlot on them, which you should never have allowed to happen. Um, and like I said, as part of their worship, they mix sexual immorality. And I will just tell you today, in, in our secular country, right, sexual immorality is the central piece of the idolatry in this country. We talk about it as a sexual revolution, right? Whether it be homosexuality, transgenderism, or all the other letters in that whole thing, right? Only in this case, who's the idol? Who's the idol? Self is the idol. I want you to notice in verses 9 through 13 the idolatry. It's gross idolatry. They worship other gods, including uh, Molech. Um, in in uh, verse 9 through 13, the first part of that uh, has the harlot traveling to Molech with a gift. The Hebrew text reads uh, Malachim, which is an alternate spelling of Molach. So it actually names him in this. It was a deity who was worshipped by forcing children to pass through fire. That's what they did. They made their children pass through fire. They literally burned them to this god. And notice it talks about the Lord's silence here. Because God is silent. It may be taken as a sign of his patience with his people's quest to alternative gods. It is not patient resignation, however, but waiting as a father waits for the lost child. The Lord continues to expose their so-called righteousness, which is nothing more than idolatry. And um, they continue to do that. We see in verse 13, God offers what idols cannot, right? God offers what idols cannot. If you look there, and let me turn in verse 13. And he says, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will lift them all up and away, and the breath will take them away. 
But he who takes refuge in me will inherit the land and will possess my mountains. So you can go ahead and call your idol in your time of distress, right? But it's not going to answer. But God is the faithful one, and it says here, you will inherit his land and you will possess his holy mountain. It's referring to being with him when he comes to the Mount of Olives. It's millennial kingdom stuff. That's what he's talking about here. In Judges 10, verse 14, it says, Go and cry out to the gods you had chosen. Let them save you in the time of distress. Psalm 9, verse 10, And let those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. Do you see the transposition? you see the juxtaposition here? You can call out to your idols who will not listen to you. You can call out to Yahweh who will embrace you. So what do they choose? What is their desire? They're going to go to their idols. And God is going to judge them for that. But the chapter doesn't end that way. The chapter is going to end with God's offering of comfort and hope. What an incredible chapter. First of all, I want you to notice in verses 14 through 15, Right, that God is removing barriers to him. Again, Alden says, God isn't building barriers to keep you away. He's open to you. He even insists that there be no obstacles at all to keep you away. Look what it says starting in verse 14. And it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every stumbling block out of the way of my people. For thus says the whole, thus says the one high and lifted up who dwells forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the crushed and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the crushed. What an incredible passage. God says, look. If you want to come to me, there will be no barrier. There's nothing that's going to stop you. There's nothing that's going to weigh. God is opening the way to himself. God isn't building barriers. He's open to you. He even insists that there's no obstacles. God And notice that he's calling who? Who's he calling? The mighty and the holy and the Pharisees and the elites. Who's he calling? He's calling the lowly and the crushed. Uh, Kathy, what phrase did you use? There you go, the lowly and the contrite. See, it isn't the special people. It isn't those who think they know everything. It's not those who have high position. It's not those who think they are running everything. It's not the leadership or the elites God is calling. God is calling those who know that Jesus is their only hope. He's calling the lowly and the crushed. Psalm 51, verse 16 says this, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. And you are not pleased with burnt offering. Listen to verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, 
a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Right? God is looking for those who understand they have no hope but Him and Him alone. Right? If you think you have a hope in yourself, if you're going to turn to politics, to anything else for your hope, well then those are idols. Good luck with that. We'll see how it works out for you. But Jesus says when you get to the point where you are lowly and you're crushed and you come to him. I love what he says in Luke 4, starting at verse 17. We're going to see this, oh, by the way, later in a few chapters. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of, of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Who's Jesus come for? The mighty, right? The elites, the politically powerful. He has come, as it says here, preach the gospel to the poor, to the captive, to the blind, and to the oppressed. Right? He's talking about those who feel that in their soul. Right? When you realize you have no hope but Jesus Christ and Him alone, that's when God calls you. And God will comfort His own. Look at verses 18 and 19. I have seen His ways, but I will heal Him. I will lead Him and pay Him and his mourners in full with comfort, creating the praise of the lips, peace, peace, to him who is far away and to him who is near, says Yahweh, I will heal him. This is an incredible promise to those who trust in him. This is an incredible promise to the poor, the oppressed, to the captive, to the blind. Right? God promises comfort. By the way, do we live in a world that is characterized by peace and comfort? Right? I don't mean physical comfort. Right? I mean, we're very blessed. We have showers and refrigerators and really big beds and nice houses with thermostats. Right? I don't mean that kind of comfort. I mean comfort for your soul. I will tell you, there is less and less and less and less of this in our culture every day. Suicide, drug use, these all continue to increase at almost an exponential rate. Is that the sign of a culture that lives in comfort and peace? No. Right? The number of suicides, especially among young people, is the highest it's ever been. Right? The amount of the hundreds, the literally hundreds of thousands in America have been killed by drug overdoses and fentanyl, all this other junk, right? I mean, we're talking numbers lost in wars, and that's just in one year. One year, right? You don't do that if you live in a world of comfort and peace 
but God himself will comfort and heal. This implies or is connected to the coming of the Holy Spirit, who is described as God's what? Comforter. See, I want you to understand this. When God offers you peace and comfort, he's not saying you won't have hard times. He's not saying you may not get cancer. He's not saying you may not deal with loss of a loved one. What he's saying is he will give you an internal peace that will last for all eternity. Jesus put it this way in John 14. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate that he may be with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. You know him because he abides in you and will be in you. And I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus promises his Holy Spirit. The comforter isn't some external amorphous thing. He lives within you. And this isn't some emotional, you are truly and actually and factually filled with the spirit of Jesus Christ himself. You have a comfort and a source of comfort that in the darkest of times will be with you no matter what. In Matthew 5, verse 4, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In Ephesians 2, verse 17, And he came and preached the good news of peace to those who are far away and peace to those who are near. Come. What verse do you think Paul is quoting? Sound familiar? It's right here from our chapter. Jesus came, and Paul's point is, who's the one who came to fulfill this? Jesus. That's why Paul quotes this. That's why I read it. Paul is saying Jesus is the one who will bring peace to those who are far away and peace to those who are near. This is the promise of God. This is what he's saying here in Isaiah to the foreigner, to the eunuch, right? Now, I love you guys all, and I know all you guys, and but none of you, I don't see on the news every day, you're not like special, I don't see people on CNN trying to get an interview with you, right? We're not, we're not special elites, right? President Biden isn't calling me on the phone going, hey, Art, what do you think here, right? Right? But those are not the people of the kingdom. The people of the kingdom in their heart realize they have nothing. They're poor, they're oppressed, their souls are destined for hell, and then they turn to Jesus Christ. That's who he's talking about here. And he's going to just he's going to juxtapose that with his judgment of the wicked. Look at verses 20 and 21. He says, "But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. See, what we need to understand is we need to think biblically about the culture around us. Right? You can put on all of these endless news shows, right, with all of these commentators and all these so-called smart people 
And they're going to tell you this guy and that guy and this party and that party and what this guy said and what that guy said, and I don't care about any of it. There is no peace in any of it, right? I have said this earlier based on what I believe about Matthew, I'm sorry, Romans 1. Our culture is disintegrating and nothing is going to stop it, right? It's like a building. Once it starts to collapse, you're not going to stop it. You can't stick a plug in there and hope it stops. It's going to collapse. And that's what our culture is doing around us. But we understand that's because, as God says, the wicked are like a tossing sea. It cannot be quiet. There is no peace for the wicked. And we all understand. Will anybody argue with me? We live in a non-Christian nation, and the whole Western world is characterized by being a secular culture, right? There's a few dots of light like this church and other churches like it. But for the most part, we live in a very dark land and it's getting darker by the moment, right? How many of you have seen a headline this week and revival breaks out and all these people are turning to Christ and Biden said, you know what, we need to stop all this immorality. Anybody see that headline this week? I missed it if you did. What about the headline about Alistair Begg? Well, okay, we, we, I don't want to go down that road. Right? Very familiar with the argument, but if you want to talk to me afterwards, that'll be fine. But Isaiah, for, by the way, Alistair Begg has done a lot of really good things throughout his career, okay? Isaiah 48, verse 22, it says this, There is no peace for the wicked, says Yahweh. There isn't going to be any peace. That's why they're all committing suicide, by the way, or on drugs. Romans 8, verses 3, uh, 16 through 18. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the paths of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Did you catch it? That's New Testament talk, by the way. Well, that's New Testament quoting Old Testament talk. Right? There is no peace. And as our culture becomes more and more secular, peace is going to disappear and the disintegration will accelerate. But the thing to remember is, do you have peace? Yes. Will Christ ever desert you? Do you have the Holy Spirit within you? What's going to change that? Nothing. We, our hope is not in the culture. Peter, and, and God reminds us that you are strangers and aliens here, right? Where is your real home? It's in heaven. It's not here. You are a stranger and an alien here. You need to have a passport from heaven, right? Yeah, I'm not, I don't really live here. I'm just visiting, Right? And you know, one, of the, one, second, one of the things I love in the Christian community is when somebody passes away, when you get an email from our church that, oh, somebody passed away, we don't say they died. What do we say? They went home. And for believers, that's true. You don't die, you go home. You go home. Who, who had a question? Yes.
Um, yes, here's the bottom line, whoever says that. Jesus died for what? For who? Sinners. So let's look at the life of Paul. Ask them how many murders have you committed? You know, how many times have you persecuted Christians and put them in prison? God save them. Look at the thief on the cross, right? What righteous thing did he do? Nothing. I mean, this guy wasn't just a petty thief. They didn't catch him at Kmart trying to steal, you know, a box of cookies, right? And we can look throughout history at the people God has saved, right? So the key you remind them, the issue isn't their sin. The issue is their Savior. Are you willing to have your sins paid for by Christ by putting your faith in him and repenting of your sins and following him. Are you willing to do that? That's the issue, is it not? Okay. Let me just briefly talk about some implications of all of this. Oh, by the way, this is for your question. So I just want you to know, specifically for your question, look at point one. I put that, I just added that for you. There you go. The gospel is for everyone who calls on the name of Jesus. The gospel is for everyone. It's for the eunuch, it's for the foreigner, right? There's no sin in the past that is bigger than God's grace and mercy. In Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Who's going to be saved? All the nations. All the nations. That's everybody. When they say all the nations, they're talking about the people. All the nations. God is saving people from every tribe and tongue. And look around this room if you want proof. How many of you are Jews? Probably not many. Okay, except Gary. You know, um, which is why he always likes bagels so much. You're welcome, Gary. Shalom. The point is God is calling everybody. God extended his... God tried to communicate his love in Isaiah 56 when he says, come to the eunuch. The biggest outcast you can find. Jesus associated with who? Oh, tax collectors. And prostitutes. As long as they repented and followed him, they were welcome. It says this in Romans 10. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. You believe on Jesus Christ, your past is erased. He doesn't care where you come from, and he will call you and he will save you. Everybody. And I find that incredibly encouraging. You know what? To prove my point, God even saved me. Right? 
And you guys don't know my heart, but I do. If I was God, I wouldn't have saved me. The second thing I want to point out is never look to men for hope. I'm not saying we don't have friendships. I'm not saying we don't have trust. You should follow the elders in your church, the leadership of the church. There are godly men we look to. But in the end, even the elders in this church are not your hope. Right? I'm not your hope. Chance isn't your hope. John MacArthur's not your hope. Only Jesus is your hope. Israel leaders didn't follow God and they led their people to destruction. There is no hope in men, only in God. Right? And, you know, I hate election years. I really do. All of the junk. Can I give you some advice? Take your TV, if you have a baseball bat, wind up, and just smash it. Don't turn it on. Half of your social media, just turn it off. Delete it. I can show you how to delete an app. It's really easy. Right? Because it'll only discourage you. I mean, there's nothing on TV I find encouraging anymore. I mean, Stan thought he found something when Ohio State was playing, but in the end, Stan was discouraged. <laughs> right? And we don't have any Michigan fans here, so there you go. God says this in Psalm 146, verse 3, Do not trust in nobles, in merely a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. That's God talking. In Isaiah 2, verse 22, Stop regarding man, whose breath of life is in his nostrils, for why should he be esteemed? That's God talking, not me. Acts 4.12, for there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved other than Jesus. Right? I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying don't care about your country. I'm not saying any of that. Right? I'm not saying be ignorant. But what I'm saying is none of this is our hope. I got news for you. The 24 election, I don't care how it turns out, is not going to fix a culture that is already in decay. Right? The government can't legislate morality. There's not going to be a law passing all Americans will now become Christians and follow the Lord Jesus Christ and love him with all your heart and soul and mind. That law isn't going to get passed. And if it did, they're going to all disobey it. Right? There is no hope in that. And finally, find your comfort in the only true source of comfort. Jesus said this in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Jesus says, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's your Savior saying that. That is the creator of the universe saying that. That is the God who is God and the king who will come back and be king of all kings and lord of all lords. He is saying, and notice, I am gentle and humble. Highlight that in your Bibles, by the way. If you haven't, 
highlight that. Get your highlighter out or your digital highlighter, however you do it. Let me read you another verse. This is another one to highlight in your Bible. Jeremiah 2, verse 12. God is talking to Israel and he says this, For my people have done two evils. Well, let's pay attention. We don't want to do two evils, do we? Anybody in here want to do some evils? Okay, here you go. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That is exactly what our culture does. That is exactly what we're doing. We have forsaken the fountain of living water where there is real joy, real satisfaction, and we've made for ourselves broken, dusty cisterns. And we're sticking our face in the dust trying to drink healthy water. We're looking for peace in a place there is no peace. We're looking for satisfaction in a place there is no satisfaction, and we have forsaken the fountain of living waters. Let me close with this one verse. John 7, verse 38. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. I'm thinking that's what you want, right? Rivers of living water flowing from your own soul. Nobody can take that away, and it sure beats a broken, dusty cistern. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And Lord, I just thank you for the clarity of your word. I thank you that you have called the poor and the oppressed and the lowly, and the crushed, and the eunuch, and the foreigner. I thank you that you have called me. And you have called all of us because you love us. Not because we were worthy of it, but frankly because we weren't. And Lord, we will go from here to worship Jesus Christ, who is our King, our Lord and our Master, and we are His slaves. And I pray your spirit will enable our worship so that you will be pleased with all that you hear and see. We pray this in his name. Amen.